Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for uh, the chance to gather together, worship you, to study your word, to talk about all that you've done for us here in these questions of the catechism. Lord, to just be amazed at how full of grace you are, even for people like us who so often are prone to wander. And Lord, we just pray that we would uh, wander less and less as, as we feel the pull to, to the foot of the cross, to the throne of uh, our, our God, and, and Lord, know that we have direct access through Jesus Christ. Uh, we thank you that we can worship together at 11 and, and uh, lift up your name in song, pray together, and, and open your word there as well. And Lord, we, we thank you for the celebration of uh, new little life that we're going to have after the, the service. Uh, and Lord, we just pray that this whole day would be one that, that uh, brings glory to you and uh, Lord, uh, pleases you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I had asked, what are the dangers of only growing in one direction? As we had talked about growing inward, outward, upward, and downward. And certainly there is a tendency in different kind of stripes of Christianity to focus on one or the other. So, thoughts on that. What's growing downward? Did you not write anything? Mm-hmm. I don't remember. In humility? Humility, yeah. Humility. Were you oh, last week? You no, were here last week. Was it? No. I don't know. Probably not. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So what question are we have? Same one. We're still on the same. Still 35. Yeah, Fire. Sorry. New glasses? Haircut? Look at this guy. My barber opened up. Fine. <laughs> Slop. You know, that was the schedule. Yeah. What's the danger of growing in just one direction? Yeah. So that was inward, focus just on your inward growth of renewing, you know, sanctification, you're becoming more and more Christ-like. Outward would be focusing just on good works, uh, doing. Upward would be, you know, waiting for the return of Christ. Pharisees whitewashed tombs. They were just on the outside. Okay, definitely. And what's the danger there? Well, it's it's not what God wants. (laughs) That's a danger, I guess. (laughs) Hypocritical. It's it's not real spiritual progress, right? It's it's faked if there's only the outward. Does that mean you're not saved? Uh, if you're faking the fruit and there's no change of heart, yeah, right? And I think there are a lot of people in American churches, even those who go very regularly, who are just kind of doing it out of habit, doing enough good stuff to kind of feel like they're doing the, the right stuff out of habit, but they've not really encountered Jesus and their heart hasn't changed. Uh, and sometimes it takes just the bottom falling out of their life for a minute to reveal what where, where their heart really is? No, it wasn't here, but oh, I mean, eventually, I guess. <laughs> if, you, if you only focus on one of these and you neglect others, then the one that you're focusing on isn't even going to really grow because I think that they're all, they all affect each other. So if I'm just focused on my interior growth and I'm just focusing on myself, I'm not actually growing if I'm not also you know, living in community with other people and um, living in light of the fact that, you know, heaven or the afterlife or, I don't know, we're 
eternity in heaven, new earth, um, is real, then it's going to impede the growth I'm trying to accomplish. Or if I'm just focused on good works, then I'm not growing at all interior. And, and if you want to be sanctified, you need to be working on it. Because you're called to do all of those things, right? You know, you're called to good works, but you're also supposed to be growing interior spirituality. And if you focus on good works and you're doing really great, or your interior growth and you're doing really great, then you're not being humble. What about if you, yeah, go ahead. I think I agree with totally with the obedience part, um, but also this uh, question talks about benefits. So it's like, we get this. You know, we should be happy to grow in all the ways that we're benefited from God's grace. Yeah. What are some traditions that focus just on inward growth and don't emphasize the outward? I mean, I feel like I feel like the the, the more modern uh, take on, on kind of reformed section of things tends to be a little more so ours knowledge right yeah <laughs> yeah, knowledge, yeah heavily ridden learn more yeah get more in tune with you know the kind of spirituality that the Westminster divines had and and really work on you and at the same time we will. We'll straight up mock the Joel Osteens of the world for making every sermon about you. Right. And it's like, well, all we've really done, if, if we fall into that error, is kind of dressed up what kind of work you're doing on you and made it look very holy. Right. But that you weren't saved to just work on you, obviously. Uh, there, there's, even in the ultimate uh, passage about this, uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Anyone know that one? For it is by... Grace that you're saved, not through faith. This is a gift of God, not of not of works, lest any man should boast. People stop before ten. It says you were saved for or unto good works that God had determined beforehand, prepared beforehand for you to walk in. So, even when we want to emphasize these doctrines of, um, you know, it's not about what I do; I don't earn my salvation. The proof text we go to, to prove it, point us outward. And Jesus, was he had no patience for the kind of spiritual navel-gazing that causes us to just sort of shut down the suffering around us and stuff. Probably the Levite and the priest who walked by that bleeding guy on the road in the parable were thinking quite holy things, and they were worried about their own internal status as being clean. They didn't want to get unclean by going outward, and we... Definitely don't want to fall into that trap. And then there are those that are, uh, they err in the other direction. There's so much about what you do that you start to lose sight of the fact that Christianity is the only religion where you don't enter God's presence by what you do. And, and that's, you know, some of them are so uh, downward focused that you lose the anticipation of the the kingdom that is to come, the the... Uh, return of Christ becomes this sort of ideal that we're going to achieve. And then there are those that are so focused downward uh, that, you know, they're upward rather, that they're so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. Uh, and that's in Thessalonica when Paul says, go to work. You want to you eat today? Go earn some money. I mean, if you can't, the church will provide for you. That's, that's already been well established. But if you can, stop just like hunkering down for the return of Christ 
because you really don't know when it will be and you're here to to do the stuff I created you to do. It also seems like anybody would naturally gravitate toward the thing that they're already kind of good at and so then you wouldn't be growing much at all in the rest of your life. So if I like doing interior mind stuff, that's the sort of thing I'm going to gravitate toward anyway and I'm not really improving a whole bunch because I'm already focused on that in my life, mm -hmm. right? I wonder how much being an introvert or extrovert yeah. can play into this too. You're, you're going to be drawn to other people right. who want to uh, be very contemplative and right. get their nose in the Bible and do all that, but, but who, if you said, let's go, there, there's some people down there, let's go talk to them about Jesus that have a heart attack, uh, hyperventilate, or if you said, even let's go feed these homeless people. Uh, you know, they, they would, oh, I don't know, I'd rather stay here and read my Bible. And then there are those who, you know, they're so into interacting and doing that they have a hard time settling, uh, uh, centering down, to use the old Quaker expression, and just kind of calming the zzzz, uh, and, and and getting into God's Word. And, and I don't know, I think somehow Alex may be the key to fixing it, because what he does is, he reads lots and lots of books. Well, like walking around and <laughs> burping a baby and moving. Um, well, and you asked yeah. about particular, um, like what strains of Christianity might be focused on what. And I think of my experience um, going to the youth group with my friend Tina at her Presbyterian church. And now my niece is going to a youth group at a Presbyterian church. And it's very much, they're doing all sorts of stuff. And we did all sorts of stuff, but we didn't learn much. Mm. about God. I don't, I, is one better than the other? I don't know. Because the faith without the works is dead. The works without the faith are pointless. Yeah. You really need both. And so we need each other, kind of, right? To, to help bring us back to where we need to be. Well, even the difference between growing up going to a Missouri Lutheran church, which was very cerebral, to then when I was a teenager going to an ELCA church, which the youth group actually went out and did stuff, was eye-opening. Right, this, this faith thing isn't just fire insurance for me, uh, which also Baptists historically have kind of viewed salvation as, but it's supposed to be a way by which I become just conduit of God's love and grace, and, and I don't just proclaim the gospel. I adorn it with good works, acts of love and mercy. I actually care about people. I don't just see them as like marks. Um, all right, let's, let's move on to question 36. All right, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Joseph Addison, after a long and manly but vain struggle with his distemper, I'm going to say that again. Joseph Addison, after a long and manly but vain struggle with his distemper. <laughs> I always think it's nasty when people say in an obituary someone like lost their battle with cancer. It's like, just yeah. let the guy get sick and die. You don't have to lose a battle, but this is worse. Good grief. After a long and manly but vain struggle with his distemper, dismissed the physicians and with them all hopes of life. But with his hopes of life, he dismissed not his concern for the living, but sent for his stepson, who was highly accomplished. He came, and after a decent pause, the youth said, 
Dear sir, you sent for me, I believe. I hope you have some commands. I shall hold them most sacred. Forcibly grasping the young man's hand, he softly said, See in what peace a Christian can die. He spoke with difficulty and soon expired. Oh my goodness, that's the best one so far. I have been there, and I don't know about, you probably have seen a lot of people die, but they don't know they're dying. Um, not to bring up horrible memories from your life. Uh, I've been there for a lot of people, people's death, and I'll tell you, there, I've seen in what peace a Christian can die, and it is probably one of, the, like, we talk about apologetics, you know, how do you make a defense of the faith, and people often want to learn about apologetics for their own benefit, to strengthen their own faith. You know, give me the arguments for this stuff and against the secularism and, and all this. To me, this is some of the best apology, the best, if I, if I need to remind myself that this is real, uh, even if there were nothing behind it, if I could die with that peace, give me Jesus, right? So the, the notion that at death, we are welcomed into God's presence, Yes, death is our enemy. I preached recently on this. Uh, I thought it was clever. Called death a frenemy because, uh, well, being the last enemy uh, that Jesus will defeat, uh, death does usher us into the presence of our Savior and has no real tyrannical hold on us. The second death, which is really the sting, has no claim to a believer. And so when we talk about what benefits we receive from Christ at death, they are at least as much of a, a source of hope for us as those that we receive in life. Amen. And we don't want to only think about, oh, I follow Jesus so that when I die, I can go to heaven with him. I'm making finger quotes right now. Um, that's, that's not it. It's, it. it's also about life now. But any religion that doesn't t teach you how to die is useless, which is why the, you know, make every day a Friday live your best life now stuff is useless. It, it just kicks the can down the road. Stay satisfied a little longer and don't think about the fact that you're mortal. The Christian faith offers ultimate hope here. And even beyond the, uh, we're going to talk about the resurrection in the next question, but even beyond our death, uh, there's that little teaser here that our bodies do rest in their graves until the resurrection. Uh, that there's not only a peaceful death, but a triumphant awakening. That those who sleep in Christ are sleeping, and there's going to be, it's going to be jarring. I don't know if, I usually try to set an alarm that's music that starts slow and builds. Uh, not something, but the trumpet's going to wake us up, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is a hope that we hold to. Um, and... This is really the end of what begins with justification and sanctification. Me made perfect in holiness. And what do we call this piece of the... Did you say it? I was about to answer. Say it. No. Glorification. There you go. Yeah, you were thinking in terms of the, the uh, meta-narrative. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation, uh, which we th talk about with, with Christ's return. Uh, and when we're talking about salvation in the past, present, and future tense, we talk about justification, sanctification, now we're becoming practically holier, and then glorification, when we are made perfectly holy at death, immediately passing into glory. Uh, this is such a wonderful hope because as hard as I seem to try, I can't 
become perfectly holy. So those four directions in the previous question become perfect in us when we... Yes. When we pass. And, and you know, whichever one you're leaning toward and, and struggling with, the suddenly you have this perfect whole, wholeness. Uh, shalom, which means wholeness. We have peace with God, peace with ourselves. You know, what makes us made in God's image is that we have capacities that are godlike and we have relationships. Uh, the, the capacities, everything that, you know, a chimpanzee can't do, but you can. Have these discussions. Uh, paint a picture. I know that they'll sell you a picture painted, but it's not real art. Uh, write a song. Do mathematics. All this stuff. And, and then the relationships. A relationship with our creator, with our fellow image bearers, with creation itself. All of these things will become perfect and whole. The shalom that was shattered at the fall is perfectly restored and on the new earth will be forever present and Christ present with us. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Somebody read that. Verses 25 to 27. It's uh, tying together these aspects of our salvation. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle, any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So this is actually a passage about how the kind of sacrificial love that husbands should have for their wives. And he says, strive for the kind of love that Christ has for his bride. And then he just goes off on this theological tangent about what Christ has done and will do for us. He gave himself up for her, meaning went to the cross and died so that we could be cleansed. And then he, he, will, he did this so that he will be able to present her, us, as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So ultimately, I mean, in justification, God sees us this way because he sees the righteousness of Christ. Ultimately, anything that tethers us to the flesh, to the world, and to our old dad, the devil, will be severed and burned away. And, and that will be why we can walk into the presence of God and there remain forever. Um, does this happen for anyone ever before death? We were just talking about this yesterday over lunch. I, my friend Jerry Kohler, who's a, a pastor in South Haven, and I, he's been reading John Wesley, which is good stuff to read, but he said, I just can't, I can't get my mind around this doctrine of uh, perfect sanctification of, of perfect holiness and, and perfect love that, that they hold to. The idea that if you are a believer, you shouldn't just say, someday I'll be perfect. You should say, you know, like next Wednesday I'll be perfect. Um, I don't mean to be flippant, but uh, here, here's what 2 Corinthians 5, 6 says. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. As long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. And I mean, there are many passages we could point to that will tell us that I will continue to contend with the flesh as long as we're still on this earth, in this fallen world, with these sin-cursed, I don't want to say bodies because I don't want us to get platonic, but ultimately everything about our existence right now has been tainted by sin. It's being, it's being redeemed, it's being restored, but we're never going to get all the way to perfection. 
In fact, if you did for like half a second, you'd immediately be filled with pride and you'd fall back down, right? So <laughs> there's, this is the kind of contending where you're trying to make as many yards toward the goal as possible because you, you want to be there at that goal. Not for your own pride or your own sense of accomplishment, but because that's where God's throne is. And ultimately, you know, the clock's going to run out. You're still going to be a ways off. And he's going to pick you up and carry you the rest of the way. And that's the Christian hope uh, at death. It doesn't happen before death. Um, Hebrews 12. <clears throat> but you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We will be made perfect. Sin, I think maybe even the burning away imagery, even though it kind of fits some of the biblical imagery, these days is not the best way to go. Because it makes people think of a different doctrine that has to do with the burning away of whatever sins remain in us. What doctrine is that? Purgatory, Purgatory right? The slow burn. That, that, you know, it might be a thousand years or ten thousand, but eventually you'll, you'll probably make it if enough people are praying for you, if you've done enough good or whatever, whatever. Uh, and that's not the doctrine at all. So maybe instead of burning away, we should talk about sin just being pulled up by the roots. That what we've been doing in our lives is cutting it down wherever we see sin growing up. We're, we're weed whacking it. We're, 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 you get the scythe going. We're, we're cutting it away. And perhaps we, some of those sins, we cut them so, so low to the ground. And the, the light of the sun shines so brightly that it, it, those begin to, to just waste away. And those roots dry up. And that's the end. But there's still some roots of sin in us. And... When we die, Jesus looks at us and he pulls those last roots of sin up and casts them aside. And now we are what we were intended to be and what we've wanted to be because we are in Christ. Uh, let's have somebody flip over to Revelation 21. That's way, way at the end of the Bible. Well, Aaron, I would tell you, except what I have written makes no sense. Revelation 21, 29 through 10, comma 27. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. Probably nine. Probably Revelation 21, 9 to 10 and 27. We'll see how that works. 9 and 10 are... Then came one of the seven angels with the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Okay. And, and yeah. there is no... Oh, wait, there is verse 27. <laughs> I've got one. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So that tells us that nothing unclean will enter into his presence. That if we will enter in his presence, we must really be perfectly clean. Uh, our God, who is a consuming fire, uh, is not going to sit in the presence of sin and tolerate it. So why then do we talk about going boldly into the presence of God now? What's the real difference? 
Well, this is the marriage feast, right? That's not just the throne. This is a, yeah. This is a but. But I what I'm drawing together is the the notion of God's presence, His reign, His throne, coming to earth, um, and us being having ready access to Him because we are perfectly pure. We've been purified. Now Christ goes on our behalf, right? Like we're going boldly to the throne and we're in prayer, mm -hmm. Christ is the mediator. He's the one bringing the prayer. Does Christ stop being the mediator? I'm not, I'm not going to answer that. I want you to ruminate on that one sometime this week. When we, when we die, when the last guy has died, and uh, the eschaton is upon us, and we are in, in the kingdom, does Christ retire as mediator, and so he can focus on his Lord work? And spend more time with his family, us. The way you that. <laughs> or does he continue to be the mediator for eternity? And if so, we still have that question hanging out there of what's different between now and the ready access. In fact, I tried to, with, with illustrations and language, paint the most intimate possible picture of the access we have to God, having been adopted by him, be, being his children, being spoken for on his behalf we can you know like if there's a king and people have no access to him his children can still run up and grab him around the legs and he'll pick them up you know this notion of of this intimacy that we have now in this life and then we're reading about the benefits that believers receive at death and there is this pulling away of all the rest of the sin uh the burning away of anything that's still rooted in the flesh and the access to God, because nothing impure, nothing impure will ever enter, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Um, well, isn't our name written right when we are saved? Okay. Do you ever do anything shameful or deceitful? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's one of those theological tensions for sure. Uh, that I don't think we're going to have a perfect answer for. It has to do with Reformation categories of simul justus et precator, uh, which is Latin for, I don't know if you're, if you're joking or if you've like, been listening to R.C. Sproul and you're actually tracking with me, um, Latin for simultaneously justified and sinful. So there are those who would say, you know, we're just sinners. And then there's other people who say, don't say that. We were sinners, but now we're saints because we're holy. And you're both right. Uh, we're, we're sinners and we're saints. Uh, and there's this war going on. And yes, Jesus, our mediator, uh, closes. He stands in the gap and he, and he brings us close to God. And that is a reality now. Yeah. Does it have something to do with the fact that there is a distance between us and God at this point that will not be there on the new earth because God is on the new earth? Something perhaps about uh, looking at him now through a mirror, darkly, uh, out of focus, seeing him behind us, and then on that day being able to look at him face to face. Uh, yes. So the intimacy that we have now is well beyond what we deserve. It's well beyond what uh, anyone could hope to have apart from Christ, but it's it's nothing compared to what we will have. We still have this thing to look forward to that is just, um, it's going to make 
the access that we have to God now, as, as miraculous as it is, look like nothing. And, and we're going to say, I can't believe I ever spent time where I wasn't fully in his, the presence of his glory, uh, you know, standing in the midst of the cloud of, of God's Shekinah presence. It, it's ultimately the kind of thing that before Christ came, it would have probably been blasphemous to even sort of long for. But now we have it as a promise in the scriptures. It would have been perceived as blasphemous to, to long for it. Uh, Isaiah 57, 1 to 2. Who can get there before I can? It's a race. I'm weaning. No, I'm not. I'm, here we go. 57. No, I'm not there yet. Keep going. Keep going. One and two. I'm there. Oh, good job. Ty goes to the runner. Go ahead. What? Didn't you say you got it? No. Oh. All right. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters peace into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. Very thin. That's I'm going to strike. Says. I know. I'm going to strike it from future teachings okay. through the. There's probably better passages we could go to. Anything in the scripture about uh, those who sleep in Christ uh, being awakened. When you are laid to rest, I mean, I, I can't. I'm, I'm a little claustrophobic. Not crazy. But when I think about being in that box, even though I know I'll be dead, it's panicky, right? Um, but for a believer, the grave is not a prison. You know, every one of us will die um, and will be in some way laid to rest. I hope. I hope none of you are just lost. Uh, and for us, we're buried in cemeteries, which every time I preach a funeral, I remind everyone that that means sleeping place. Because the hope we have in Christ is the trumpet will blast and everybody wakes up. That it, and those who are in Christ will rise again. Uh, in fact, I had a, a pastor, Ed Pikey, who used to tell me, that's why you don't walk over anybody's grave. It's disrespectful, but also you don't want to get in anyone's way and get knocked over should Jesus return. <laughs> so here's the question I want to take the, the, the next 15 minutes on. If this all sounds so good, and it is, and it's all so much better than what we have now, and it is, should we long for death? Should we want to die? Should we, should we see what we are living in now as kind of this prison to be escaped? We, we sang at the annual gathering yesterday uh, a hymn that I like to sing, and it's got a cool history, but theologically it's a bit wonky. I'll fly away. I'll fly away, certainly in the sense in which we're told that we will be caught up into the sky and be with Jesus. Yes, that's, that's great. But some of the verses, like a bird from prison bars has flown. If you go back historically, I think that's a spiritual that goes back to slavery and you're thinking of escaping that horrible institution and a life that's of oppression. Great. But I think people who sing it today often think of escaping their body. Like the prison bar is, you know, is, is this. And that's very unbiblical, but why? I just tip what I think my hand is, but why should we not long for death if, in fact, death is the final thing, the last gate we pass through where the sin is ripped, uh, uprooted and we're perfected and it's nothing but marriage supper of the lamb, 
perfect avocados that never go bad, and absolute access to the Father. Well, death isn't the object of the hope. Death is the punishment for sin. Mm. So we shouldn't be longing for it, but the stuff for believers afterwards, sure, we should long for it. I think you really hit an important point there, which is that Christians often fetishize death itself uh, and try to downplay. I, 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 if I had a dime for every Christian funeral I've been at where something was said, you know, we're not going to cry today. We're going to celebrate Bob's life because, hey, we believe in Jesus and therefore it's not a sad thing that happened. Really? Jesus super disagrees with you when he <laughs> weeps over the death of his friends and family. Um, and, and so, yeah, the notion of death itself, it, it is perhaps the doorway through which we travel to this greater blessing. But I think now, even now, we shouldn't be focused entirely on getting beyond death and what, what lays behind, beyond it, because at death, assuming we're not here for the return of Christ and we die, it's an unnatural thing going on. Uh, somebody, everybody, flip over to Philippians. Bob, what are the Philippines? The Philippines are a chain of islands in the Pacific. But that's not important right now. Philippians is the book of the Bible after Ephesians. And we're going to go to Philippians 1, 21 through 25. And, in fact, to give it some context, maybe the beginning of that paragraph to the end of it, at least as in the NIV, that's kind of midway through verse 18 down through verse 26. Uh, could somebody read that for us nice and loud? That might be perfect. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now... As always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is, in, is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you, your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me so Paul is feeling this tension do I do I long for uh, dying which is a very real possibility in Paul's setting or do I want to go on living do I want to be in the body absent from the body and present with the Lord or what I don't know I don't know what I want because both of them uh, have blessings for me because we receive benefits from Christ in this life and at death. Uh, and he says to live is Christ, to die is gain. You want Christ, you want gain. <laughs> so he's, he's torn in this way. Uh, and ultimately he says, he's, he sides with, I'm going to stay here with you guys. God's got stuff for me to do. I'm going to accomplish it for your joy, to make it complete. I'm not going to exit early. I'll leave when my time is done. I'll leave that in God's hands. To, to take me home when my time is done. And in the meantime, I'm just going to keep on doing what God put me here to do. So I gave you the most hilariously t labeled, uh, titled 
article of all time, Why Paul Loved His Body, um, which in my mind makes me think of him with no shirt on, like oiled up, like flexing. Um, written weirdly by my former literary agent about my former seminary, oh, I would say current uh, mentor, the doctor, the Reverend Dr. Michael Whitmer, whose theology is like a fine wine. Uh, so if you're interested in this, there's a whole article about his book, and then there's also a whole book, and then there's a follow-up to the book. The book is called uh, Heaven is a Place on Earth, uh, named after one of the great songs of our time, and then the follow-up <laughs> is called Becoming Worldly Saints, which is a worse title, but a better book. Uh, and we have it in the library, and you should read it. If you, if you want to read about uh, how God might want you to actually be happy in your life right now, uh, and not just want you to spin your wheels and try and uh, win people to Christ and go to sleep and then wake up and you know flog yourself on the back. This this very weird Platonic notion we have. Uh, so I'm going to read the whole thing to you here. It's short. In one of the best known epistolary passages, Paul encouraged the church at Corinth to look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal, which is 2 Corinthians 4.18. Seems like a problem for Michael Whitmer, whose new book, Heaven is a Place on Earth, argues that modern Protestants have wrongly split spiritual matters from earthly ones. Not so, says a professor at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary. The visible thing Paul disdains is his intense persecution and the toil it was taking on his body, verses 7 through 12. Well, the invisible thing he focuses on is his renewed depth of character that would never have been forged without it, verses 16 through 17. So Paul determines to concentrate on redemption, inner renewal, rather than the fall, his light and momentary troubles. There is nothing in this passage, he says, about the transience or temptation of creation. We don't want to think of the world, the physical, the body as being bad, and the spiritual, the heavenly, the forms being good. That's what Plato taught. And even though he had a lot of almost spot-on ideas about God uh, in his own way, he wasn't a Christian, uh, certainly. But what about the next chapter? Paul writes these words, and these, I think, are the more difficult ones. When I, when I first read Whitmer's book, this passage came to mind. And I'm like, hold on a minute. Don't go too far. Because Paul writes, For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And this is what Dr. Whitmer writes. There are two things which Paul longs for in this passage. To be with the Lord and to remain in his body. And we saw that in the other passage as well, right? It's, it's a tension. He wants to be with the Lord. He wants to remain in his body. Paul is looking forward to seeing Christ. The only reason Paul wants to go to heaven is because Jesus is there. 
but dislikes the fact that unless the Lord returns and spares him from death, he will be a disembodied soul when this meeting finally occurs. So he laments the perishable nature of his present body and longs to receive his immortal heavenly body, which will clothe his naked soul and make him fully human, body and soul, once more. So when people talk about going to heaven and sloughing off this body, this meat bag that I'm wearing that's wearing out and being free and being a soul, they're thinking like Plato, not like Paul. Paul says, I don't want to be a naked soul. I'm a human. I'm, I'm made. I'm an earthling. I'm made to live on earth. I'm made to be fully human body and soul. Whitmer says that Paul describes our resurrection body as a heavenly dwelling and an eternal house in heaven. He did so not to designate where we will live forever, but to indicate its source in the man from heaven, Jesus Christ, and the need for faith to believe in a future body which lies beyond our present perception. In sum, unlike the incipient Gnostics prevalent in Corinth, who hoped to slough off their physical bodies and return as disembodied souls to their heavenly home, Paul longed to dwell with Jesus as a whole person, body and soul, in the place he was meant to live, planet Earth. This, Whitmer notes, is just how the biblical story ends, when in Revelation 21.3, a loud voice from the throne declares, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. God with us, Emmanuel indeed. Dude, that gave me some chills. It's 15 years ago. Gosh, I'm old. So, what do you think of that? Does that, does that help shed some more light on, on this discussion? Paul did long to be present with Christ, but he did not want to be half a guy, half the man I used to be. Uh, and it, oh, the ultimate fulfillment of all this, of course, is the resurrection, which we'll get to, God willing, next time. But we're not meant to be spirits floating around in heaven, we are meant to be humans, body and soul. That's how Adam and Eve were made. That's how we are meant to be living on earth. Eden, and a re-Edenized earth. Uh, and in many ways, when you read about these you know, biblical uh, feasts and things, all the way up through reading about the Great Commission and the effect the gospel will have of leavening, the whole interim between uh, the fall and the consummation this redemption period is about sort of slowly re-Edenizing this place. Uh, and you have kind of a parallel track to our, to our salvation where we're never going to get there. We're not post-millennial. We don't think we're going to finally be like, oh, the last nail and now this whole place is perfect. It's going to be a big space and then God's going to come down. And with fire, just like the language used for our glorification, he is going to... Burn away the old, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and the dwelling of Christ will be amongst us. Heaven will come to earth, and everything will be as it should be. Well, I think you meant, just now you mentioned something that also answers your earlier question of why we shouldn't long for death, because we are, we're the way that that happens here. So if we're mm. not here, then we can't be working toward that. Which is what Paul said. I'd like to go be with Jesus, but if I stay here, I can keep doing this stuff and serving you. Uh, let's put a pin in it there. I think there's a lot more to discuss about this particular topic. I find this fascinating uh, because, again, different faith traditions focus on the pie in the sky by and by after you die or bringing heaven to earth right now as if they're a dichotomy. 
when ultimately the hope we have is for here and now, question 35, and at death, question 36, and at the resurrection, the next question. And we want to embrace all of that uh, as true. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. And we just pray that you would uh, bring us back together next week and watch over us until then. In your holy name we pray. Amen.